The theme for the evening talk is the practice and understanding of metta, M-E-T-T-A. It's a Pali word, it's a language the Buddha is reputed to have spoken. It means loving kindness, it means friendship, and it means love. And on this uh, theme, I would like to speak about with you a little bit this evening, which will include some of the the trends, shall we say, within the uh, insight meditation community, the practice and application of uh, metta, what it means for uh, the heart in dealing with the issues of life, the difficulties, the sadnesses of life. And, and try endeavour to put it in a general context of Dharma practice. <clears throat> With regard to the recent historical back- background, uh, Metta had a rather low profile, dare I say, uh, in the practice some years ago. And This was generally reflected in the practice and teachings of uh, insight meditation, which perhaps at its core is saying, sit and watch, walk and watch, and be aware of what's unfolding in existence and look very deeply into it. And quite often, of course, revealing to us in any penetrative depth of observation change, of impermanence, of coming and going, that this is a fact of life, sometimes without any invitation uh, whatsoever from ourselves. The actuality of unsatisfactoriness arising in the field of uh, existence, in the various forms of difficulties that we as human beings that life itself is presented with at times. And the third, which I referred to in a previous uh, talk, to a degree the impersonal nature of all of this, that owing to the conditions being around and prevalent, issues of pain and suffering can arise. Owing to the conditions of things, things come and go, and the kind of vipassana message is, let's look at all of that. Let's see into all of that. Let's not be afraid of that. Let's not deny it or avoid or obscure it. But let's look into that in order to see whether we can be with the world as the way it shows itself, gain some genuine insight and understanding about it, not be afraid of what shows uh, itself and find a wisdom for a, a clear life in both uh, heart and mind. And it's a very important and invaluable uh, aspect of, of the teaching and it's a teaching which isn't particularly religious in the conventional interpretations of religion and also it's a teaching as well which can't just be put into a kind of um, secularism and a temporary management of uh, a stress or a difficulty. 
therefore a teaching which embraces uh, every feature of our life from speech to attitude to understanding to effort to uh, livelihood to awareness to depths of um, meditation to our being in the world and what has happened in <clears throat> recent years is that there has been a significant growth and expansion within the community of serious practitioners and those entering into these uh, practices of interest in metta. It's no longer here um, a sign just hanging above the door uh, when you arrive and those of you who just arrived wondering um, whether it was some kind of appreciation to a, a yogi that died on a retreat or something. <laughs> So, the area of metta was, for quite a few years, and with a number of teachers, um, uh, a practice in which, at the very end of the retreat, there would be a metta meditation, generally lasting, lasting for 5, 10, or 15 uh, minutes. And in that meditation, we generate a warmth of heart, letting go of any hostilities and resentments and negativities and share our heartfulness and kindnesses with others both near and far. And what has begun to take place within the larger community is the wish to focus and cultivate and develop more metta during the retreats. You will have heard a guided meditation from uh, Shada during the retreat and references to kindness and metta in small groups, uh, talks, one-to-ones, etc. And a more predominant feature as well in the programs. And so here's a response which is taking place by request, by need, to bring in more heartfulness and kindness in a very clear and tangible way into these kind of rather tough, straightforward uh, insight meditation uh, teachings. And perhaps the support and the background to all of that, and for those of you who know uh, metta practices from this retreat and uh, elsewhere, is that it's making a very important contribution to heartfulness and to the uh, healing and health and well-being of, of the heart. And it seems to be particularly helpful and beneficial for people who have much difficulty with the heart. And that can reflect and show itself in various ways. For some, through a sense that the heart features too little in one's life. Some people do regard and see themselves as being terribly cerebral, uh, conceptual, intellectual, all of that, too much with the brain, so to speak. And clear feelings of heartfulness are not easily accessible, sometimes not coming well and easily enough through the meditations. 
And one has looked at oneself and said, my life is too mental in various ways that it, it can be. And therefore, perhaps these meditations of kindness and cultivation of uh, kindness can help bring out something from within which is clearly deeper. And therefore, that kindness, that friendship, that uh, love begins to inform intellectual life begins to inform our thoughts and our views towards. Then there are others who have a strong tendency towards self-rejection. It shows itself in the way that one is thinking about oneself, but also for some it's showing itself in a general kind of um, ongoing attitude. And that whoever and whatever one is in life, one never feels good enough. Things always should be and could be better. And in that gap which we can experience between what is and how I feel I should be or who I want to be, that gap, of course, can give immense license to a great deal of self-rejection. Not liking oneself, constantly judging oneself, putting oneself down, and a general lack of acceptance of oneself. And even though outwardly one's life might be, to others, appearing to be unfolding in a useful, beneficial, uh, non-harmful, creative way, it may do nothing whatsoever to how one is viewing and feeling about oneself. And so the negativity, the hostility, the... Uh, self-condemnation comes in as a pattern or after certain circumstances or as a, a regular attitude towards oneself. And one of the powers and great benefits of uh, loving-kindness meditation is that in developing the loving-kindness meditations it may take that hardness or negativity or coldness that's in the heart contribute to dissolving it and actually feel some warmth in the heart and in that warmth as it settles and gets deeper with ourselves a genuine and natural sense that one is okay the mind of course can't convince us of, of, of all of that you and I we don't keep thinking 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 all the time but the, it's the deeper messages from the heart which have so much influence upon us and so when there's warmth in the heart and it's steady and there's contentment in the heart we naturally feel okay with who we are we naturally feel okay that we are and, the, and there, therefore there isn't that gap between who I am right now and what I think I should be or I should become and therefore the loving kindness meditations do make a very useful contribution to that. But sometimes when some teachings and, um, and approach is made with regard to, in this case, metta um, meditation, all too easy, isn't it, for the mind to say, ah, oh, I need that. I think I should just be doing metta meditation. And one has to check in with oneself here and that uh, checking in is because in my um, ob observation 
uh, over the years and over the recent years, there are, putting it uh, frankly here, some people who are doing metta meditation who have no business doing metta meditation simply because they're already extremely nice people. <laughs> extremely kind, extremely warm, easy to show their uh, 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 affections, and then there's a general sense that uh, heart is warm and uh, uh, steady. And what on earth does one want to be doing metta meditation? It's like pouring more tea into the cup that's already full. And, but the thought can always say, well, we always need more metta. Well, of course, we always need more tea. But <laughs> especially if you're English, <laughs> which I just had before I came in. That's why I'm late. And so sometimes the more mind can come in and set in, and it needs this um, knowledge of oneself. That means the knowing of oneself, what's useful, skillful, and appropriate. And, and therefore, the meta-meditations, when they directed towards oneself and then shared with, with others, do have to be seen rather strictly in a context of the condition of the heart. It, ha it, it has uh, a particular place for particular people in particular situations. And that matters a great deal. And the danger is, in, in the tradition, there's, um, it's often spoken of um, close companions or close uh, relatives. It often amuse me why the metaphor of the re close relative is, is used. And, and that is, one engages in something which is beneficial, but there's a little danger which is close to it, and one can slip to the danger zone of. And in this case, there is the development and the application of meta for the heart, for the steadying of the heart. It's close relative, or close companion, or close danger to it, is the feel-good factor. And we are in a culture which is in love with the feel-good factor. It goes against the realities of life. It goes against everybody else's experience that sometimes pleasanter feelings arise and sometimes they don't. Sometimes the unpleasant feeling arises and sometimes it doesn't. And a world view can be launched and followed up frequently with the pursuit of the feel-good factor. And it's not just in California that this is going on. <laughs> it's a worldwide phenomenon. And that feel-good factor can easily rub its edge with metaphor the heart. Naturally, if one is sitting and meditating and generating um, kindness to oneself, to one's friends, to strangers, to the un unfriendly, and the meta-meditation is going well, naturally enough one will feel, feel good and feel better uh, about it. But the, actua the actuality of the meta-meditation 
is more obviously than just feeling good about it, but it's also, of course, going much deeper than that. It's a contribution to deeply understanding what interconnectedness is with ourselves and with life itself. It's along those invisible lines of interconnectedness that metta runs, that kindness runs. And sometimes there is a, a lack of deep connection with oneself. And in the absence of that connection, all those negative judgments can uh, arise. And from the, the negative judgments, as I say, it becomes the, the repetition of one's existence. And therefore we need the antidote. We need the exploration of something alternative just to remind us that we are connected with our existence. And that is okay. Awareness connects us with our existence. And that same awareness connects us with other existences, both near and far. And if that connection is there, the metta actually will run easily and freely, without any practice. It will just run easily and freely along that clarity of connection. Some uh, months ago, <clears throat> I was in uh, Burma and I went to visit uh, uh, two, two people. One was uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and uh, Vipassana uh, meditator and who said that in her five years under house arrest that it was her practice uh, of uh, Vipassana and reading of the talks of the Buddha which got her through this period of, of time and w without it it would have been too difficult and she didn't know how she would have got through and I went also to uh, meet with Upandita and Upandita is one of the uh, most prominent uh, teachers in the Vipassana tradition and has a fairly um, fearsome reputation that in mentioning his name or um, spending any time uh, with him few people will not make reference to his personality which of course as Jose reminded us the other day which we know he won't be at all attached to and, and he sits, it was the first time I had met her with him, and he sits in a uh, chair as a kind of throne, I suppose you would call it in a way, <laughs> which the monks do with great humility. And, and when I arrived in his, arrived in his room, I um, did what, what is called the grap, which went down, head to the floor ritual. And one of the changes that Upandita has introduced since his first visits to North America is that he was known as real hardcore Vipassana teacher. And lo and behold, anybody who dare sleep more than four hours a day. 
And when people went to the, his room, they, he had absolutely no interest in their personal storyline, their history, their, their past, what they did, who they were, where they've been, and why they're miserable. And, <laughs> and simply wanted to know what was going on when the abdomen was rising and falling. <laughs> this is a slight simplification, but you'll get the gist. And there was almost a sea change of view in which, lo and behold, this um, uh, rock of vipassana meditation who only expressed um, movement between one side of the mouth and the other and nothing else has ever been known to move, <laughs> began um, giving metta meditation and this sent its own ripples, if not uh, shockwaves, throughout the community, what has happened to the rock. And I had some dialogue, actually for about an hour, along this theme uh, with him. And I said, but you're known as the hardcore teacher of witnessing of impermanence, seeing the unsatisfactoriness, of um, seeing the... This is the process going on, interdependence, no, no self, as the language which is used, to penetrate, to understand liberation and nirvana. I said, why, why did you introduce metta? And he said, uh, well, he said, he found in his trips to uh, uh, North, North America, I think he's only been to uh, uh, Europe once, he said he found on his trip to North America that there are so many people with such pain in their life, all levels of themselves, that it was extremely hard for people to really be able to witness comings and goings of events, the unsatisfactoriness and the clinging and the holding and the identification that goes with it, and just bodies arising, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, I am I just arising and passing and to see it in that impersonal light that I had been speaking to you about earlier. And so he felt it was necessary to introduce the metta meditation to help people feel more at home with themselves. And in that feeling more at home with themselves and with their heart and feel more steady, then the attention could go much more directly and immediately to looking at some of the bare characteristics of existence and really penetrate into them. And I said to him, and using the metta as well to go into deeper levels of uh, inner absorption, which is actually into the heart as well in a more deeper way, these absorptions. And I said to him, as I was just commenting to you, isn't there a danger though, however, in all of this, that this companion, the feel-good factor, is such that one does quietly get identified with it, wishes to sustain it and keep it and develop it, and therefore liberation, which is a free and enlightened life, gets neglected and forgotten because one is experiencing uh, kindness and friendship towards oneself and all beings, one is experiencing uh, uh, um, um, happiness, uh, uh, joy in the heart, 
And that becomes the kind of end in itself, which has to be a danger in uh, such practices. And he said, no, no Dharma teacher would ever allow a student to rest in metta or in jhanas, that means in absorptions. Teachers must always point to vimuti. Vimuti means uh, uh, liberation, to freedom, to an enlightened uh, life. And it might be that within our community that this, what he said, and I'm just obviously backing it up here, does need to be seen in its context. It does need to be recognized as well that the potency of metta and all its invaluable support for the heart, which I just referred to, it's the capacity to distill much pain, sorrow and sadness in there, that one mustn't neglect the fact that it is brought together, that is the metta, in the heart through conditions. Through conditions. And the conditions of practice and development, the conditions of awareness and energy, the conditions of attention and interest, the conditions of connection, all of that cultivates that to make that happen. But the heart of the practice is not in fact the cultivation of various conditions as valuable and helpful as it is for, uh, for all of us, but to realize the unconditioned. And as long as that's very, very, very clear with us, we won't make the common and easily done error of judgment, in a way, of resting with something, this case called metta, resting with something which is definitely less than the best. And the best is liberation, the best is the unconditioned. And then metta can be cultivated, developed and practiced and used for all of its tremendous resource that it is for oneself and others, but one knows it's a stepping stone, not, the end, not an end in itself. And within the community sometimes there's a little bit of forgetfulness of the real nature of the unconditioned. Looking at the inner level for a moment or a little while if I may uh, with regard to this the matters of uh, the heart are very important Shada was speaking to you a little yesterday evening about the conceptual frameworks in um, which we live and how we can of course get lost in, in all of that but also the relationship to the heart is also one which isn't an ongoing moment-to-moment event. Not for you, not for I, not for anybody. And the very character of consciousness is that it moves. And its move, as the Buddha said, is sometimes the focus, let's say, is on the body. Through energy of the body, through the pain that the body is experiencing, through the posture, through diet, etc. And as the text says, the Buddha says, when we are very much focused on one, in this case the body, at that time, self-evident but important, 
We are not focused on other. And you and I have numerous experiences in our life, obviously. We're focused on one thing. In that focusing on one thing, it's at the expense of. Always. So consciousness has a kind of limited remit of what it focuses on. Sometimes we're focused very much on thought. Of course, a pleasant or unpleasant feeling, which is heart manifestation, will be informing the thought. But we're so concentrated, willingly or unwillingly, in our thinking that the matter of the heart runs second. We're so concentrated on dealing with the pain, the matter of what the condition of the heart comes second. We're so much concentrated on um, awareness of the here and now. We're so concentrated on doing the method and technique properly. So, con- so determined to be very mindful, we forget to be heartful. And sometimes there has been very valid criticisms of insight meditation practice. So much concentration on being mindful, people say, well, it feels so dry. It feels so repetitive. Mindfulness is there. The step-by-step is there. The sitting and observing the breath is there. But it's a mindfulness which is at the expense of. At the expense of the feeling of the heart, of being respectful to the moment. The feeling of sitting on this earth with sensitivity and, and connectedness and that quiet, warm sense of presence. The, the, uh, the standing, and in that uh, standing there, feeling the feet's contact with the earth, but we're standing in life. We're standing in the here and now. We're standing in the, in the midst of all of this. And if we forget all of that, then it can just be being mindful with almost robotic-like attention. Why? Heart's not there. And we don't have the language in the English language which combines heartfulness, mindfulness. But one can never be at the expense of the other. So in that, when we're, as I say, at times, through the circumstances that we're in, we are with the heart, and sometimes we are at a distance from it. And one can't say with life that you and I should always try to be with the heart. No human being has ever been. There's no track uh, record of it. One only has to look at any lives of any person that we respect. Sometimes heartfulness is there, sometimes it isn't. But what's going on when there's some loss of connection with the heartfulness? It has its, its condition, it has its period and place. What happens in the gap? And sometimes that gap is simply we space out. And then we find ourselves not focusing on the body, not with the heart, not with the thought, not with the sound, not with the day, not with the moment, not with each other, whatever. We, we're out there. And having been out there, something happens which impacts upon us and suddenly we find we're back. 
But while we've been out there, this hasn't been a state of nothingness and that we just go back to where we were. All sorts of things can be happening. Heart, mind and body, we've got no clue about it because we're so out to lunch. Then we arrive back, it's usually at the end of the week, and upon arriving back to where we are, God knows where we'll land. And some will land in their knee, and others will land in their thoughts, and others will land in a storyline, and others will land in their feelings and uh, emotions, and some will uh, land in peace and har harmony, agitation or restlessness. It's any, anything can happen. So um, our mindfulness is, which also cannot be perfect, is a way of being in this world with heartfulness that it acts as a steadiness for us. That we know what it is to wander, as the Buddha said, into Mara's field. To wander far, too far away from being a mindful and uh, conscious and heartful person and what that will do. That's to wander into Mara's field. So the sense of heartfulness and mindfulness is a wonderful inner resource, which is our saving grace in a way, that you and I as human beings have. Now sometimes that gap between the thought and the heart, which is taking place, is strengthened by the manner of the thinking. And when the manner of the thinking is, self is arising in it, with a lot of um, harsh negative judgments that, that take place, we get in fact distance from the heart. And what's happening is the heart is producing some unpleasant feeling and it's running to the thought and the thought's got the I in it. And so when there's a combination of the I, the thought and the unpleasant feeling meeting together, that collision I was speaking to you about. And then we can experience that when the heart begins to move through, it may only take one small conversation, as a number of you refer to, and one says, goodness, tears start to flow. Emotion starts to run through. Agitation from the hearts start to take place. And there's a feeling of ripples and waves running through from the heart's life, through into uh, consciousness, and the box of tissues are out. Common enough, we all know, and familiar story. So, what's the wisdom which says, I can't be with the heart all the time, because I have to address bodily needs, I have to address the here and now, I have to address situations, and whatever it might be, I have to reflect on matters. <coughs> what is the wisdom which can help me to have an integrated way of being. That I don't neglect the heart. I don't have a habit of it. So that when there is that neglect and there's a habit of it, which can happen in mindfulness meditation, remember, that I don't suddenly find myself, as it were, thrown into the heart in such a way that it creates these waves. And sometimes we, one 
thought, we know this, one image, one memory, one intimation about something, and suddenly there's a wave running. And one wonders, how is it possible? Just one little memory, or one thought about the future, or one perception of what somebody has done, and it's kind of dropped nuclear bomb-like right into my emotions, and I feel so sad, so uptight, so intense, so angry, or whatever. It's got to be saying something about the history before the event. It's got to be saying something about there was a gap, a distance, um, a lack of association, a lack of connectedness with the heart in order for that to happen. And therefore we're saying here, our mindfulness practice is our heartfulness practice. Our heartfulness practice is our mindfulness practice. And so that we can begin to get a sense of these two working together. The difficulty is when we kind of land in that painful way into the feelings and there's a wave of it that runs through. And a number of you have been speaking with us in various times about this. Is that when it's over, one's gone through one's agitation, one's possessiveness, one's jealousy, one's negativity, one's hurt, disappointments, pain or whatever. That quite often... We are so relieved for it to be over that we've weathered it through, we've survived it. We just, as it were, want to get back on with our life. We want to get back on to life being a bit easier for us and a bit more pleasant or whatever. And sometimes there's not much wish to go back to it. And we know that sometimes when we go back to something that's been going on with us, we go back to it in a conditioned way. We use the immediate past to slag ourselves off, to condemn, judge, criticise. And all of that is the echo of that wave. And we think we are looking at what happened to us clearly and objectively. I am like this, it's always like this, I'm always like this, I'm so uptight, I'm so stressed, I'm so tense, or whatever the language we are, we are doing against ourselves. And we actually deceive ourselves in thinking we're making clear, independent, objective, realistic statements about our behaviour, or about our agitation. That reaction is that at work. It's the echo of it. It's the manner of it. it. It is it. And we are foolish enough to think we are making clear statements about who we are. So what is it to find a sense of reflection which is not judgmental, it's not charged with I and negative thought, which is willing to look back to the event it may just be a single conversation that one's just had with somebody. Maybe just a memory that just took place. That one looks back at, back at it, but it's not with, there's no echo. There's no, no, nothing from it whatsoever. It's coming from another place of awareness to look back on.
Buddha says, all those who come to clarity of the heart, in the past, he's, he told to, this to Rahula, his, uh, his son in a Dharma di uh, inquiry with him, he said, all those who have come to clarity of the heart, in the past, present and future, have used the resource of recollection for that clarity. All, he says, no human being can come to clarity of the heart without the ability to recollect what's happened. And as I say, sometimes we confuse the recollection with the echo. And at other times, we're so glad that it's over with, we're not in such a, a state of agitation, we just want to get on, our, on with our life, therefore we don't use the capacity to recollect. To look at what is it in that experience and prior to it, remember the field of dependent arising, and prior to it to understand the event. What is it that needs to be understood? To be clear about. And if the thought that triggers in that immediacy of recollection has a tremendous amount of I, I, I and any whisper of judgment in it, all it will tell you is you're on the wrong track. If you ask what is to be understood there and the outcome is I, 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 it simply indicates you've pressed a button. You've generated more reaction from the emotional life or a lot of intellectual thoughts and neither of them will contribute to the understanding. And the indicator is that the recollection is producing I, 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 I. Now sometimes we raise the question, what is, needs to be understood in this, kind of sounds technical, dependent uh, field of dependent arising to be understood well not only of the event before the event and afterwards and we need for that that recollection power of recollection that uh, awareness to see clearly and perhaps instead of I coming out I, I, I perhaps some awareness of con conditions will arise some insight some understanding some clarification may come of course it may not but at least one is developing the capacity as uh, the Buddha said to Rahula to recollect to, be, uh, to explore what recollection is free from the I, I, me, me, my, my syndrome one has a meeting with someone, many of you know this from just and report this from the interviews. One is standing outside the door to uh, uh, see one of the three of us. Be a lot of production of thought, uh, feelings in the body, or sensations, or impatience, or waiting. All all that goes goes on. There's far more interesting things going on outside the interview <laughs> room door than inside. Perhaps we should go out in the corridors and do the interviews there. 
And so there's, there's the before syndrome. Then there's the interaction. Sometimes with the interaction, the person feels that she, he, you, whatever, is being met. Sometimes it seems like you have one agenda, we have another, and it's a couple of ships passing in the night. Oh, sorry, ten minutes is over. Well, <laughs> come back next August. And, uh, <laughs> and, and sometimes there's a, um, a meeting which is taking place. And the connection, the response, the uh, one-to-one flows well and, and, and freely. Or in a small group, the same situation, of, of course, applying. Then there's the after period. And in the, the after period, there can be all manner of responses which are taking place. And those responses may be in the form of recollection, in form of natural uh, reflection, and hopefully something of benefit and clarity and understanding needs to come. But for that to be able to, be able to come, it can come quite naturally, spontaneously, and uh, freely and easily, or, as I said, through uh, deliberate, purposeful recollection of the situation, of what was valuable in that, and picking up and seeing that clearly. Maybe something that you said, maybe something that we said, maybe something in the totality of it. But when we step out of the situation... There can be a kind of forgetfulness and neglect of all of that. And what we have surfacing is the pattern. And the pattern is working in the name of the meeting, in the name of the the communication. And the pattern is approval and disapproval and likes and dislikes and and wanting and not wanting and and agitation and, and all of that. And we've actually got rather removed from the event and we've got stuck with an old pattern in the name of the event and we can't distinguish between the two and that's where mindfulness being a conscious human being matters not only being mindful and conscious for the present moment but being mindful and conscious of the actuality of the bare, simple, contextual reality of what just took place, which is an interdependent meeting of two people or a group of people meeting together and seeing it in its fullness, not in its prejudice. And the prejudice will be I, 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 and uh, differences. And out of that fullness of awareness, instead of the prejudice, biased one, understanding, insight, acknowledgement, clarity, appreciation, can come through the heart. Because because one can't make a habit of awareness of the fullness of the situation. It takes mindfulness for that. It takes consciousness for that. Habit is prejudice. Habit is divisive. And when there's less of the habit, then there's a a natural looking at what happened, looking at the totality uh, of it, if it's appropriate, and seeing and understanding from that. 
So as you see, this happens quite naturally and occurs uh, frequently enough in the, in the days here. But, as I say, the period before you enter the room, the period afterwards, the period before you speak in the inquiry, the period after, is part of the totality of that situation, all interacting and informing. Let's be watchful of fastening too much on the eye and giving it an inherent existence which is unfair, untrue, unwelcome and especially unnecessary. It's just, the eye is just a feature in the total situation. Finally, on, on kindness and awareness and heart, heartfulness, In the tradition, one uh, hears uh, quite regularly and quite importantly the area of uh, forgiveness. It might be that during the time that you have been sitting, walking here, somebody comes to mind who, past or present, who has hurt you. Forgi forgiveness is essentially related to being hurt or somebody that you know being hurt, or others being hurt. And the memory of that person, or people, or whatever it was, comes. And there is some negativity, and anger, and hatred, and thoughts of revenge. And the heart is rather tortured in that situation. And it's being directed towards an individual, or... or uh, individuals, real or imagined. And we may say to ourselves, I ought to be forgiving. I ought to be able to show uh, love and kindness and friendship towards this person. I ought to be able to practice metta to diffuse my, my anger towards him, her, them or whatever, or oneself in some cases where one feels one has um, terribly let oneself down in one's values. As I was hearing from uh, somebody uh, the, the other day who had uh, <coughs> lost his temper and uh, uh, hit a woman and felt very, very, very bad after it and, and very, very uncomfortable. And and one, sometimes I feel, well, I ought to be able to send metta to another, to others, to oneself or whatever. And in the teachings, with a tremendous, uh, I think, wisdom, I mean, just a very touching uh, wisdom, in, with regard to matters of the heart, where the only place where in these teachings... <coughs> divinity is spoken of. It's not in generalizations, oh, life is divine. I don't know how anybody could say that when we see the brutality and the savagery that takes place on this uh, earth. But divinity is, a, is only in Dharma teachings in relationship to the heart. And in relationship to the heart 
where a human being is expressing love and friendship and kindness. This is the divinity of the heart. Where a human being is expressing a compassion to, for, that is the active relief of suffering in this world. It's the divinity of the heart. Where a human being is expressing joy and gratitude. And Shada uh, gave uh, guide his meditation on the great significance of gratitude and how much we have to be grateful for. And I do hope that those uh, meditations do have as much um, development and cultivation as, as the metta is having and as the compassion is having as reflected a little bit in some of the uh, dialogues we were having this afternoon. Where is the, com- where is the compassion in this action? Where is the compassion in that? Even in things which don't necessarily seem connected. But the fourth one, sometimes in a way almost kind of neglected in its um, profound significance. And that is um, uh, upaka, which means equanimity in English language. It's, it's that steadiness of the heart and the mind in the face of the difficult. In the face of the difficult. And it's given the same position, the same respect and acknowledgement as the metta. It is, it is the divinity of the heart to be able to stay steady when the tendency or the possibility of being pushed and pulled by circumstances is occurring around us or from within us. And the practice of equanimity of this upeka to stay steady in the face of. Sometimes we are pulled towards pleasure in a way which we know is going to be painful and not worth it for ourselves and others. And it's to be dropped and let go of because of the consequences it can bring. We're, we're, we're faced with painful information, either from memory or from information around us. And the movement would be towards negativity or aggression or, or fear that something might happen. And we need that equanimity. But that equanimity is so significant in that sometimes I say some people do not have the power within the divinity of the heart to transform hatred and rage into loving kindness and conviction. And, um, uh, uh, forgiveness it's too big a leap for the heart to make to go from rage, anger, thoughts of revenge to loving kindness and forgiveness and the teachings make it very clear to us we should not have that expectation upon ourselves there is a divinity of the heart which is of equanimity of calmness steadiness and firmness in the face of and I think it's a profound and beautiful and, and ultimately truly sane teaching and sane message for humanity so that we don't get caught up in these unreasonable um, expectations on ourselves how we should be when we're dealing with difficult situations and thinking I should be just full of metta. When one knows, one looks at oneself and says... <laughs> I am not. (laughs) 
And that doesn't mean to say that we have to fall back into the pit of negativity and hatred and hostility and all that goes with it. Can we find a steadying point, not easy of course, of equanimity and therefore not making those demands on the heart which are unreasonable. And it's stated it's a Brahma Vihara. Brahma means the divine, Vihara means abiding. It's a divine abiding, isn't it? That upekka, that equanimity, that gratitude and joy, that compassion and that metta, that is the divinity of the heart. And important <laughs> for us, as I say, in circumstances where equanimity is to be treated in the same respect, the same light, and the same acknowledgement as the others. So that we're wise about life. We know ourselves, we know our capabilities, we know our heart, we know who we are. And that's coming out of the field of reactivity and all that it generates. So, teachings of metta and the tremendous value, the importance of the usefulness, particularly for a number of people, and the great significance of that. The looking at the relationship of what it is to be heartful and mindful, the integration of these, being watchful that we're not moving too far, too long, away from the matters of the heart. And seeing the place in our sittings, in our walkings, of equanimity, and when necessary, those periods of the full awareness of immediate recollection. And if we explore all of that and generate insight and understanding on, into all of that, liberation comes easy. An enlightened life is extraordinarily close at hand. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live a conscious life. May all beings be free in the midst of things. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.